The International Association for Near-Death Studies presents NDE Radio, a weekly exploration of near-death experiences and similar encounters with the other side. Now, here's your host, Lee Whitting. Do NDEs intensify the sense of longing that most people feel in their lives? Welcome to NDE Radio, brought to you by IANS, the International Association for Near-Death Studies. I'm your host, Lee Whitting. Our guest today, Martina Straub, is an experiencer who worked at IONS for four years before moving to Florida. We had a brief chat at the IONS convention in Orlando, and she was feeling the same frustration as I was, seeing so many friends and having so little time to talk with each of them. After that, Martina emailed me with the following suggestion for my Vital Signs column. She wrote, I can't remember if you've ever done a column on longing but might I suggest it? This was triggered by seeing so many of my beloveds at the conference and yet having such teeny tiny windows with each. She also sent a wonderful poem by David White titled Self-Portrait. Martina, welcome to NDE Radio. Hi, thank you, Lee. Good to have you uh, on the show. Um, Martina, perhaps we could uh, begin by your reading Mr. White's poem. Okay. I'll be happy to do that. David White is a poet who um, is originally from Scotland, but who lives in the northwestern part of the United States. And this is one of his older poems, titled Self-Portrait. It doesn't interest me if there is one God or many gods. I want to know if you belong or feel abandoned, if you know despair or can see it in others. I want to know if you are prepared to live in the world with its harsh need to change you. If you can look back with firm eyes saying, this is where I stand. I want to know if you know how to melt into that fierce heat of living, falling toward the center of your longing. I want to know if you are willing to live day by day with the consequence of love and the bitter, unwanted passion of your sure defeat. I have heard in that fierce embrace, even the gods speak of God. Yeah, such a great poem. Mm-hmm. And and you'd mentioned in your email uh, some other poets who probably would agree, like Mary Oliver and John Donahue, O'Donohue, and and um, many religious poems as well. And of course, I think of Leonard Cohen's music uh, and the longing combination of spiritual and sexual longing that's uh, that's intertwined in his music. Yes, well, if we look at life as if all of it is spirit manifesting, then longing can manifest anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. Uh, oh, and then you wrote, but I honestly feel that longing is the lead string in our life. So uh, clearly you, you have, I think you've, you're absolutely right. I think that is one of the main driving forces um, in, in, you know, in lives. And I, I was going to, I was going to ask you as sort of a first question, do you suppose that your NDEs or, or anyone's NDE intensifies uh, that longing in people's, you know, that everybody feels, but does it make it stronger in a, the, an experiencer's life? Well, I think there's some plan here. <laughs> Perhaps we could call it a divine plan. And I think that experiences like that, as well as things like meditation and other things, 
bring that more to the forefront. They allow you to experience it in a visceral way so that you wake up to it. I think we all have it. It's like mm-hmm. a chip that we're born with. And um, the fact that it gets triggered in some way to wake up and to cause us to follow a lead, um, definitely. I mean, in some ways, if you looked at our life just on the surface of it, whatever gets accomplished without desire, the desire for some outcome or the desire for some result, the desire for some experience or some participation in something, it's sort of like desire drives everything. Mm. And desire is a is a sort of a manifestation of longing, it seems to me. But desire can drive us down a lot of false paths. It or, absolutely can. Yes, it or can. Or paths that dead end, and uh, and we find that 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 didn't do it. <laughs> that right. wasn't the answer. Right. That but wasn't I think, what I was really longing for. Right, but I think the the ultimate longing is, you know, it's going to self correct. You're eventually going to get there. Um, and it's possible, too, to learn from your mistakes. You can have some experience and say, oh, this wasn't really what I was looking for. And then you self-correct and you look someplace else. Now, there's not a lot in our culture that leads people to a spiritual angle on it because it's, you know, religion is sort of falling by the wayside in a general way right now. And, um, aside from poetry or some other things that people would have needed to have been exposed to at some point in their life, most of the things that are there for the taking that seem desirable are, you know, sex, lies, and videotapes, or shall we say, you know, (laughs) alcohol, you know, drugs, different things um, that block your perception of your own deepest longing, which is to know yourself in an intimate way and to be able to say, who am I? I mean, that's that's just a great start. I, I had a man come to me to learn meditation one time, and he said, oh, I don't want to come to all the days that you're teaching. I don't have time. He said, just give me a tip. And I said, all right, I'll give you a tip. Whenever you're confused or you ever are just sitting quietly, just have the question in your mind, who am I? And he said, oh, I can do that. <laughs> And and that's a good place to start, you know. It is. It's not as easy as he may think it sounded, but no. But he wasn't might... willing to, <laughs> to take eight hours over a four day period to learn something else. <laughs> this, this might be a good point at which you could tell tell our, our listeners about your experiences. Um, you mean my near death experiences, or yes, my sort yes. of life experiences? No uh, well, near death experience. Um, the near-death experience that is most memorable to me and sort of seemed to really give me the crux of what um, we think of as a a near-death experience was when I was 19 and I was in an automobile accident um, and my best friend in college was killed in the accident. Um, I did not know that she was dying, but I left my body wherever I was in the hospital and found myself in the room when her parents were being told that she was not going to survive. And I was confused because I didn't even know what had happened to her. I didn't know what had happened to me. 
but I did, um, you know, I had that out-of-body experience, and then, of course, in that space, you're not, you're, you're not concerned with it. You know, you go to the next experience, and I remember thinking, oh, I must be dead um, because I'm not in my body. How could I be up on the ceiling in this other room? And so I thought, oh, well, who are the dead people I would like to see? And I thought of my grandfather and some other people who were beloved to me and who had died in the last couple of years. And he wasn't there. And <laughs> that was sort of confusing to me. But um, in any case, I knew I wanted to stay in that place because it was a very peaceful place. <clears throat> there wasn't any pain there was a lot of light, and I could really feel, you know, enshrouded by that unconditional love that everybody talks about. And so the voice came to me and said, you know, it's not your time, and you you have to go back. And I said, oh, but I don't want to go back. And the voice said, but it's not your time, and you need to go back. And I said, you don't seem to understand I'm not going back. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably my stubborn Germanic side. But, of course, needless to say, when you confront the divine with something like that, boom, you're back in your body. (laughs) And that's what happened. And um, many years later, when I was talking about the situation with PMH Atwater, she said that she thought I probably had had a near-death experience when I was younger, and I did swim a lot. We had a pool behind our house, and um, we went up to the lake with our cousins and frequently there were 11 kids in the lake and no parents anywhere in sight, you know. (laughs) So certainly I could have had an experience in one of those places. But then subsequent to that, I had two near-death experiences under anesthesia when I was giving birth, and those were a little bit more terrifying because I definitely didn't want to die. And I felt myself going, and of course when you're anesthetized, you can't, sign or do anything, talk to the anesthesiologist, but I felt myself trying to get out of there, Um, and at one point in one of the experiences, I heard the voice of someone near my head say, we're losing her, we're losing her, and I thought, well, this is not good, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. but I guess because he was watching the monitors, he was able to pull me out, and um, so, you know, I, I came back. So that was for if you count the supposed near drowning as a child. Um, and then that that helped me to see, I think, that there are other experiences than the ones that we see with our eyes open. You know, there's definitely a parallel invisible world happening. And that made me want to study philosophy in college, which I did. I majored in philosophy and history, which are sort of things that belong together anyway, I think. But... Um, the whole time I was reading philosophy for my major, I would say, oh, they sort of have it. Oh, they really have it at this place. Oh, no, they don't have it at all. And I would move on from the philosophers that I thought were really off base. But then in my senior year, I learned Transcendental Meditation. And when I was actually in my first meditation, I realized that that was the thing I had been looking for all throughout my study of philosophy was it was an experience it wasn't a intellectual understanding how did you feel about plato and the shadows on the wall of the cave being 
you know, a, an imitation of reality rather than reality itself? Well, I had many arguments, as you might imagine, at a Catholic college about whether it was Plato or Aristotle who was correct. And I always sided with Plato. <laughs> I think like... I think having had a near-death experience, you would have to. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, that happened right at the beginning of my freshman year at college, so it set me up, you know. <laughs> do you think if you'd had just the the car accident NDE and not the the two frightening ones because you because you were giving birth you had to be there for your children um, would that have intensified your longing because you didn't want to come back and they forced you to come back and I would think that that would would drive a strong longing for being on the other side well it did it never did anything like make me contemplate suicide really I mean I was not that kind of trying to get over there but I did have many years. I think PMH says something about it taking seven years to integrate the experience. And, um, of course, because my girlfriend was an only child and I was one of six, I had a lot of survivor's guilt from the mm. accident um, and really had to work with that. Plus the fact that I had, I just stayed very connected with death. I had been since I was a child of, you know, having premonitions of people's deaths and knowing when, when someone was going to die. And um, so I felt that connection, and I never felt like I needed to get rid of it. It felt like it was something that would probably be useful to me in my life, and I think it has been because when you realize that death is actually an outcome for everybody, it makes your life more precious, the time that you do have. And... Um, now, one of my avocations is to work with hospice, and it's so frequent that people say, oh, how can you do that? But actually, some of the most beautiful experiences that people have are when they're transitioning, when their fear isn't there, when they actually are accepting of the situation, and they are okay with it, and they become sort of resplendent. All their wrinkles go away. <laughs> You know, they're they're in a kind of very surrendered place, which is they're clearly being taken care of by something more than morphine or bedpans or anything else like that, you know? Exactly. There's so many visions that come out of the hospice experience, visions and uh, premonitions and uh, and stories that uh, that the hospice worker gets that, then they can turn around and use to comfort other people. Right. Uh, the, the work I do as a chaplain in the hospital is the same thing, you know, palliative care patients uh, or people who've had, uh, who've coded and have seen this, something on the other side provide such uh, amazingly uh, reassuring stories that can be offered up to people who are afraid of death. Well, and you also learn to understand the language that the dying use because many times their caregivers either family members or even in nursing homes, some nurses don't understand when the person keeps saying, I want to go home. They don't mean they want to go to their house. Mm. They mean they want to go home. <laughs> right. You know, or if they say that somebody visited me, my husband who just passed away was here, or my, you know, my grandfather was here or whatever, and they say, oh, nobody was here. You, didn't, you haven't had any visitors. Well, uh, hello. They they were here. 
Yes. <laughs> they just weren't in the visible condition that you might see with your eyes. But the person definitely saw them and definitely received messages from them and definitely knows that everything's going to be okay. So, oh. yeah, they're not going crazy. They're not, you know, off their rocker. They're they're having legitimate experiences that are going to help them to pass with more peace. One of the jobs I had as... Um in Orlando was moderating a panel discussion of uh, three people talking about NDEs. And one of them, Peter Panagor, who has written a, a good book on this, and he's been on the show a couple of times as well, but I had never, in talking to him, never realized how uh, strongly he felt this longing to be back on the other side until that panel discussion. And it was you know, it was a good experience he had, but it was, it was, in a way it was dark too because of the a feeling that you were in a place where you didn't really want to be and then you knew exactly where you wanted to be and, and, um, it wasn't, you know, you couldn't be there yet. It's, uh, well, it was powerful. I, it is, I mean, th- definitely there is that sense, but I think you end up adjusting to, living with one foot in each world and knowing that you will be there eventually and that um, in that you feel a safety that it's not a scary place. There's no fear of death after an NDE usually. I mean, sometimes after a frightening one there is, but there's no, um, you know, it's it can be frustrating to have to live through the time, the linear time that your time on Earth involves. But I think it does help you to um, eventually know that you're going to be okay. And, you know, it's, it's sort of like the poem says, you know, <laughs> I want to know if you can melt into that fierce heat of living while still falling toward the center of your longing. And if you're willing to live day by day with the consequence of love and the bitter, unwanted passion of your sure defeat, your sure defeat is death. But the consequence of love is unconditional love. And if you're constantly in that state of unconditional love, then you you are living the other side because the other side only has that. And I think that's also, surprisingly enough, the place where we made our decision to come to this world, we came into this world surrounded by unconditional love, and in that unconditional love, we felt powerful. We felt like, I can take on anything, you know? Throw me to the wolves. I can (laughs) do it. Because we felt the support of, of everyone who loved us, and those people still do love us, even in their 3D version. Mm-hmm. They may have other agendas, and it may not feel like unconditional love, <laughs> but it still is, you know. And what do you, and there's only what do you so suppose you the uh, relationship is of longing to hope? Do you see a difference there? Um, well, hope is something time bound. I think um, it's it's like hoping for a future or hoping for an event to occur or something like that, but. Um, unconditional love is actually the state of being that we all are living in. We don't necessarily feel it because it's not aimed at an object. 
you know, usually you feel that kind of thing when it's moving. It's moving towards a lover or it's moving towards a child or it's moving towards a pet or it's moving towards <laughs> some goal that you want to achieve. Go to the Olympics. Um, but I hear, I hear your pet in the background, by the way. <laughs> Molly is barking. I yeah, there's, there's two doors closed between me and her. <laughs> I don't know what that's about. Then, well, but, she's longing to be with you, clearly. Yeah, clearly. <laughs> um, there's a there's a really wonderful radio show on uh, called On Being that's on National Public right. Radio and uh, the, the guest uh, this past Sunday read a a poem by Arainer, uh Maria Rilke mm-hmm. and I I just I copied it off because I thought it, it fits somehow and just just with what you were saying let me read that I live my life in widening circles that reach out across the world I may not come complete this last one, but I give myself to it. I circle around God, around the primordial tower. I've been circling for thousands of years, and I still don't know, am I a falcon, a storm, or a great song? It's beautiful, isn't it? Yeah, it's from Rilke's Book of Hours. Yeah. And that implies, I mean, the circling implies or conveys a sense of longing as well, that you're trying to hone in on the object of your desire? Well, you can't, though. Um, You have to just be the desire because if you try to hone in on it, you're going to make it smaller than what it really is. It's, It's the truth of our being. We are longing. We are that divine longing. And if you try to make it into a relationship or into a goal of any kind, it's never going to be fulfilling because it's not the whole, it's just a piece of it. And and his, I love that poem of his because in the widening circles, he's taking in more and more. You know, he's he's okay with being a falcon and with being a storm and with m- maybe not finishing the circle that he's in now, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Um, and, and I think that's, that's really part of what we're here to do is to realize that we're not just humans. We're everything. We're birds. We're cows. We're, we have all of that inside of us. It's, it's a one consciousness operation going on here. And there's different shapes for different jobs. And if your job is to be an IT person, you're going to be born in a body. And if your job is to be a house guardian, you're going to be a dog, (laughs) you know. And it's just the way it is, the whole system. I, I mean, I tell my hospice patients, you can't fall out of this system. You are absolutely safe. There's nowhere else for you to go. You are completely enclosed by this system. It's just a system of unconditional love. And, I mean, that's like a deathbed thing that I say to them because some of them are just, you know, in fetal position and really can't take nourishment or anything, but they don't want to let go. They're so afraid. They don't know where they're going. And I just tell them, you're safe in this universe. You're absolutely safe because that's how evolution is. It takes care of everything. You mentioned that we're born with a chip. Do you think we have a hand in programming that chip? And if so, why don't we make uh, 
why don't we include on that chip a greater understanding of death? Oh, you know, there wouldn't be any fun in the game if we knew the end of it. <laughs> <laughs> we can't we can't know the outcome. Although they do say that the rishis and the wise people know the moment of their death. Um I think it wouldn't be a fun game. It would be like cheating at Monopoly. You know, it wouldn't be fair. And um, so in order to make it even across the board, nobody gets to know. But it's it's a very... Um, I think we do on some level, but it's an invisible level that we don't really get to access until we probably get closer to it. Because... Um, we we are able to pick like our family and our place of birth and our you know whatever we also do choose prior to coming in according to the vedic tradition we choose the time and place of our death as well but the time and place of our death is a little bit variable because <laughs> we have about five possible exits and if we haven't taken the first four we take the last one whether we want to or not, mm-hmm. but it's it's just one of those things where there still have to be choices that you can make. I mean, to me, free will, really free free will, the kind of will willingness that will keep you free is to always be choosing for the divine, always, mm-hmm. and the highest good, always, but if you choose something else, you go on a detour. And so maybe you have to do something else to get back to that place where you said you wanted to be, you know, before you were born, that you wanted to die. I want to evolve this far, or I'm going to, you know, I see that I have enough help to grow this much in this lifetime. And so you want to do that, and you don't want to check out early. You had mentioned you mentioned family, and uh, with your own family, you've told me as a child you were taken by your parents who were um, uh, doing a Catholic missionary work in Mexico. Was that? Uh, do, how do you do? You see that as a longing on their part, and did you, when your chip was being written, did you program yourself to be there for that for a specific reason? Well, I suspect I probably did. You know, I don't I don't know that all of those reasons are necessarily the same and I don't think they were probably the same for my siblings. Why did we go there? Um now we find out that almost half the population in, in the United States speaks Spanish, so it comes in pretty handy. But yes. <laughs> <laughs> um but honestly, um you know, it was a huge breakthrough in consciousness to be able to learn another language, think the way people who speak that language think, and and be able to meet another culture. I mean, it made travel to India, for example, for me extremely easy because it, India has the same beautiful, colorful outfits and the same ladies with long black braids and the same fruits and vegetables and <laughs> You know, to me, going to India was like coming home. A lot of people, when they go to India, are just horrified at the poverty and the fact that there's no sidewalks and no streets and no... Do you know what I'm saying? Yes. So 
it a lot of it depends on the experiences that you've already had. So I was set up to love India. Um, and whether I specifically set up going to Mexico, probably, or or maybe I just agreed to be part, a participant in the plan that my parents had set out for themselves, which they couldn't even see over the hill to see what's coming. <laughs> um, but, you know, my mom was very, she was very spiritually oriented. She wanted to give us a very spiritual, formative life. She didn't um, make us totally Bible-pounding, you know, types of people, but she showed us in ways that were things that children could understand. Like we would have, and during Advent, she would cut salt boxes in half long ways, and that was our little cradle for baby Jesus. So every day, at the end of the day, during Advent, she would give us a few pieces of straw to make our cradle soft for him. And so we that was how we went through Advent, and then on Christmas Eve, we got a little plastic baby Jesus for our salt box. <laughs> and of course, some of us had made little fabric sheets or little little crocheted blankets for him or something. Um, one of my brothers didn't have very many pieces of straw, so we, we had to combine ours for him. But, um, <laughs> but you know, oh, those Ma- were... Martina, I'm I'm afraid we're we're just about out of time for today. Oh, okay. I want to thank you so much for being on, for suggesting the theme of this show, and then coming on and fulfilling it. So thanks. Well, you're welcome. All right. And um, this has been a really interesting, and uh, it's such an all-pervasive emotion, the longing in our lives. It is. If if folks would like to listen to this show again or any of our past shows on NDE Radio, just go to the website at nderadio.org and click on the Past Shows button. And for more information about IANDS, check out that website at iands.org. And join us again next Monday, 11 a.m. Eastern, for more NDE Radio. This is Lee Whitting saying thanks for listening.